0: Words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Colossians. Looking at Colossians four verses five and six. I just want to keep on singing. <laughs> but we only have so many songs. <laughs> Please pray with me. Oh, we love to sing of how precious you are, Christ. You are everything to us, Lord, even as we recall what our life was like before we trusted in You. Lord, we do hate what we once were, but we love what You have done for us. We love being Your children. Lord, we love being Your slaves. Lord, it's given us so much joy, so much peace, we want to be a people that shares that love, that joy, that peace, that hope to anyone who would hear. Lord, to anyone even who would not hear. Lord, we we want to be evangelistic. And not just those who proclaim the Gospel, but those who love the Gospel, who love the lost, who are brokenhearted, over the condition of those who have been separated from you. And so we ask that you would use your word to stir up our hearts and to give us clarity to understand how we might be better evangelists in this world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians 3, chapter. Sorry, Colossians 4, chapter. Let's try again. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes this, and I'll read through verse 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I ask you to consider these recent troubling statistics. The consumer price index, which measures inflation, has gone up nearly 10% in the last year. 18% 18% of Americans have just one person or nobody that they could consider a trusted friend. 18%. Every 24 hours, 1,500 teens in the U.S. will attempt suicide. Every day. 1,500. And suicide is the second leading cause of death of people between 10 and 34. 18 million people in the U.S. are affected by depression. 19 million Americans suffer from specific phobias. So not just anxiety and fear, but specific phobias. Over 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. 40% of U.S. children are born out of wedlock. Almost half. According to a 2018 Gallup poll, 59% of millennials believe that pornography is morally acceptable. And a third of Americans believe that there were more than two genders, according to that poll. Now, these are just statistics of people within our nation. It doesn't measure what people in the rest of the world believe. So these are statistics that measure people that we see every day. Walking down the street, when we're getting a coffee uh, at the coffee shop, at the cubicle next to us. And we possess the ultimate answer to their greatest need. And not only do we have the only true hope for their parched souls, but the church has actually been commanded by the Lord to tell people of the hope that He has given them. As you know, before Jesus left His disciples, He commanded them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then likewise, in Matthew 9, 37, he declared, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into harvest. And So the church has been charged by Christ to tell the world that he is the only answer to their greatest need. And so we have to, I think, honestly ask ourselves, how are we doing in fulfilling this command. Evangelism is one of those topics, I think, that tends to have polarizing effects. Now, for some people, they just get fired up when they hear the word evangelism. They love it and they get excited. And others, though, they feel squeamish or uncomfortable just hearing the word Now, I think, unfortunately, many who get fired up are often enthusiastic for the wrong reasons because they see it as an opportunity to show what they know, to prove their courage or boldness, or just they love getting into arguments. And those who often who feel squeamish or uncomfortable often are for good reasons because they they fear manipulating people. Uh, they they fear that they're being asked to do something that's unnatural. It's out of place with who they are. Of, I think most of this is because many of the, the the examples that they've seen of evangelists are just plain rude and offensive. And so they have a hard time reconciling what they see as evangelism and what it looks like to love a person. How can love be so obnoxious? And rude. And so to help those who feel intimidated by the idea of sharing their faith, I want to encourage you this morning. Please don't think of evangelism as a work that needs to be done, as some task that, that needs to be born, some performance that you need to learn how to be good at, like you're performing on stage. Rather, think of evangelism as an opportunity to share what is most important about you. Think of evangelism as sharing what you love. Just consider how grandparents just love to talk about their grandkids and nobody's shocked by it, even if you don't know their grandkids. Or how veterans just love to share funny stories while they were on deployment of just the crazy things that happened. Or how high school athletes... Like to talk about, you know, there are certain plays, their glory days, like Uncle Rico, not Rico, not you, but if you catch the reference, you know what I mean. So, but the difference between these things that people just like to tar- uh, talk about and the gospel is that these things are are often what is important about us and what we value but the gospel is not just the most important thing about us. It is also the greatest need that other people have. So it's the most important thing for them. It's not just the mo- most important thing to us. And so think of evangelism as being you sharing your greatest love and that greatest love being the very thing that another person needs to hear about. Your greatest love being that other person's greatest need. And so my prayer for this message is that the term evangelism from here on out would just be sweet and pleasant and, and exciting to you, not in some self-centered, self-righteous way, but just that the, the, the it brings pleasure to think about sharing what you love. It will be something that you truly long to do. I mean, just, just like having dinner at the Kenashitas. Like you want to go participate in that. Likewise, I hope evangelism is something you look forward to doing. That if you see that opportunity, you're going to take advantage of it because you love it. It's not going to be like an intimidating chore. Like when you're asked to go pull weeds in the backyard or, you know, to to take the garbage out. It's not something intimidating like speaking in public. It's something that you look forward to doing. Evangelism really should be the natural overflow of who each of us individually are. just coming out of the own natural way that we speak. The own, our, something that, that that's it, as normal as talking about uh, going fishing. Right? It, it should be as normal and easy as it is for Chris Merkel to talk about Bible interpretation. Or... Herb to to go serve somebody with a practical need, or Ariana Liddell to to it's, to fix some complex problem, right? It's something they love to do. They look forward to those opportunities. And in the passage before us, Paul identifies three things that make for effective evangelism: to live wisely, to make the best use of time, and to speak graciously. Let's look at that first one. Live wisely. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk. That that phrase walk, as you know, refers to how one lives their life, how they conduct themselves, how they behave in public and in private. And so to walk in wisdom, therefore, means to walk wisely, to make good choices, the best choices, to live according to God's word What God would have you do rather than what you in your flesh want to do. And this is how the Apostle James presents biblical wisdom versus wisdom of the world in James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic And the reason Paul gives for walking wisely isn't just simply for our own benefit. We tend to think of wisdom. I want to be a wise person so that I don't bring hardship into my life, so I don't look like a fool. But Paul is not saying walk wisely for your own interests. He's saying walk wisely for the interests of others. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, he says. This is for the sake of unbelievers, because the phrase outsiders refers to those who are outside the church, who aren't members of the church. First Thessalonians 4.12, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. It's the same idea. Behave in such a way that would adorn the gospel for the sake of evangelism. So these are people that believers should be eager to bring into the church. And therefore, Paul's saying you should be eager to behave in such a way that makes interaction easy. And you need to conduct yourself before these people in a way that corresponds with the truth that you proclaim. Now, I think it's safe to say that the greatest hindrance to evangelism in unreached nations is just the fact that they haven't heard the gospel. And so we send missionaries out to these nations just so people can hear the good news. But I would say the greatest hindrance to evangelism in reached nations, particularly nations in the West, is actually so-called Christians themselves. That's why In Romans 2, Paul rebukes hypocrites, saying the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. A survey made by the Ipsos Research this year indicated that 76% of Americans affirm that Jesus was a historical figure. So three-fourths of all Americans believe Jesus was a historical person. Even 50% of those who don't go to church agree with that statement. But when asked in that same survey to select words that they would associate with Christians, these unchurched people chose hypocritical, judgmental, and self-righteous. That's how unbelievers view Christians. And is it any wonder that it's so hard to evangelize in our culture? John MacArthur makes this helpful comment. If a person's offended by God's word, that is his problem. If he's offended by biblical doctrine, standards, or church discipline, that's his problem. That person's offended by God. But if he's offended by our unnecessary behavior or practices, his problem becomes our problem. It's not a problem of law, but a problem of love. And love always demands more than the law. We need to walk the walk if we're going to talk the talk. And really, our lives bear testimony, should bear testimony that we have been transformed by the gospel. We bear witness of its power. In fact, that's what it, the word martyr actually means. It means to, to bear witness to something, to testify. When people gave up their lives in the early church, they were testifying that they had more hope in Christ than they did in this life so much hope that they were willing to give up their lives and it shows that they really believe what they say when they are willing to die rather than to compromise and likewise our lives bear testimony to what we really believe our choices show what we really believe as francis of assisi famously said preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now that's a phrase that many evangelicals hate because they they think that what Francis is saying is that we shouldn't preach the gospel. But do you know where Francis got this statement? First Peter three two. Speaking of wives to wives of unbelieving husbands, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Francis wasn't suggesting that we shouldn't teach. If he was, he's a horrible hypocrite. He taught all the time. He proclaimed the gospel all the time. He he, he founded uh, uh, an institution of other uh, uh, monks who would follow after him and teach what he taught. He's making a hyperbolic statement in order to emphasize what is often forgotten and emphasize what the apostles taught, that our lives need to correspond with what we teach. We need to not only proclaim the gospel, we need to live according to the gospel. We need to show that we really believe the gospel by how we live and speak. Our lives shout what we truly believe. They they radiate what we truly treasure. You can know what most people treasure within minutes of meeting them. Certainly within days. Alvin York, the famed Sergeant York, was born in the backwoods of Tennessee on the 13th of December, 1887. He was the third of... 11 children that were born into a poor farming family. His parents were devout Christians. But when Alvin was 24, his father passed away. And then Alvin himself turned away from Christ. He said, I quote, I got in bad company and I broke off from my mother's and father's advice and got into drinking and gambling. I used to drink a lot of moonshine. I used to gamble my wages away week after week after week. And I used to stay out late at nights. I had a powerful lot of fist fights. He actually got busted selling weapons illegally. He once got into a knife fight with a, with a man over a girl. He even shot up a tree just outside a worship service. Which, of course, disrupted it. And his mother had always prayed for her children. And, and the wilder that Alvin became, the more she would pray. And, and she didn't fail to share the gospel with him. She shared the gospel many a times. She invited him and he came along to many of the church revival services that they would have in those, their small church there in Tennessee. And yet, even though he had heard the gospel many times, his heart remained hard. And one night after a long evening of drinking and fighting, he came home to see his mother sitting in the rocking chair up waiting for him. And she had never waited up for him before. And so when he came in, he says, why don't you go lie down? And she said, I can't lie down. And then she softly asked him, Alvin, when are you going to grow up and be a man like your father and your grandfather? And when he heard those words, it broke him. Because Alvin's father's honesty and his fairness, his godliness was legendary in their county. And the memory of his godly father's life just broke him, especially as he compared it to the way he was currently living. And he fell to his feet in tears of grief. And after a while, he looked up at his mother and he said, Mother, I promise you tonight that I will never drink again as long as I live. I will never smoke or chew again. I will never gamble again. I will never cuss or fight again. I will live the life that God wants me to live. It happened to be New Year's Day, 1915. When he began his new life in Christ. And what I find most remarkable about Sergeant York's testimony is just the things that God used. Obviously, he heard the gospel as it was proclaimed to him. God used his mother's frequent prayers for him. But what finally broke through his hard heart was just the simple memory of the way his father and his grandfather lived their life. It was their conduct that finally broke through. Such is the power of walking wisely. It, it preaches even after we're dead. Secondly, Paul says, "Make the best use of your time. This is the same phrase used in Ephesians 5:16. Where he writes, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. The word time here is kairos. It speaks to a moment of time. Now that moment can be a year, could be an epoch, but it could be a second. But it speaks to a limited amount of time. So it's not just time in general, but a, a period of time. A fixed amount of time. And the idea here is that we are to take advantage of the time that we have. We're, we're to use it purposefully. Specifically with an eye towards evangelism. We need to buy it up. To not waste it. In fact, literally it says redeeming the time. The word redeem actually is the same word that's used to describe Jesus' redemption of us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. And if you think about it, that suggests that redeeming is going to be costly. Redeeming the time is going to cost you time. Taking advantage of gospel opportunities is, is going to cost you your pride. It may cost you just something you want to do. It could cost you your dignity, or your friendships, even your job. Nevertheless, Paul is saying, when these opportunities arise, don't hesitate to seize the moment. Take advantage of it. Take full advantage of the opportunities to share your faith and the hope that you have in Christ. The phrase also suggests that we need to maximize the time that we have. I'm well aware that you all have a very limited amount of time in your days. And therefore, you have a limited amount of time that you can devote to sharing the gospel. We also have a limited amount of money. Right that's so we need to budget it, especially during this period of inflation. We need to budget what we have. We have to decide where we're going to make cuts and where we're going to make investments. Paul is saying you need to do the same thing when it comes to your time. Where do you need to make cuts? Where do you, make, you need to make investments so that you're making the best use of what God has given you? John and Edwards once preached a sermon entitled The Preciousness of Time. Here's a short excerpt. It says, Time is a talent given to us by God. He has set us our day, and it's not for nothing. Our day was appointed for some work. Therefore, if He will, at day's end call us to an account. We must give account to him of the improvement of all our time. We are God's servants. As a servant is accountable to his master, how he spends his time when he's sent forth to work, so also are we accountable to God. Right. This puts that the idea of free time in perspective. Our free time is God's time. And God wants us to use it in a way where it's best, best used for his purposes. We need to spend our time with an eye towards evangelism. Now, if we're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17, and we're working heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 3.23, just consider what impact that's going to have on our time. That's going to free up time, I would imagine. And so how much time does reaching the lost factor into how you spend your time? Is that a, like when we set our budgets for our money, we have categories that we want to make sure we get covered. Do you have a category for evangelism in how you budget your time? After a month goes by, do you think how much time did I invest towards prayer for the lost, towards speaking to the lost, towards building relationships with the lost so that I can have an opportunity to share with them my hope? And I say just begin to think about who you interact with the most. Because these are the people you're going to most likely have the opportunity to share your faith with. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your children your spouses right that they may be one without a word by our conduct parents just consider that you only have 18 years or so with your children to help them not only to understand the gospel but to see it as precious so you should be constantly praying, constantly considering, how can I show my children that this isn't just a philosophy that I believe, this is my love. This is what I live for. I love Christ. And so I, I don't mean how many church programs can you get involved them into? How many event, you know movies, Christian movies you would have them watch, how many sermons you give them to listen to, but how do you personally show them? That Christ is precious to you. So that they would see, they would witness what it looks like to love Christ. And you only have 18 years or so to show them that. A limited amount of time. Susanna Wesley was the famous mother of John, Charles, and Samuel Samuel Wesley. Arguably the most impactful Englishman of their century. And Susanna actually bore 19 children, but only 10 of them survived. And with her husband being frequently gone, she was responsible for the management of all the household affairs. And yet daily, daily, she steadfastly taught all her children from the Word of God. And by her own example. And usually two hours a day, while the the 10 children would read or study or they'd play around her she would sit in her kitchen chair with her apron pulled up over her head and she would spend time in the word and in prayer she called it her tabernacle or her tent of meeting and everybody in the household knew that that was not a time to disturb mom unless there was some emergency that came up it was her time to converse with her god She also made it a rule for herself to spend an hour each week alone with each of her children in order to spiritually invest in them. So she knew she needed to both show the preciousness of Christ to her children on a daily basis, teach them on a daily basis, but personally invest in each of her children on a regular basis as well. And is it therefore a surprise that her children had such an impact on the spread of the gospel in their generation? Some of our favorite hymns are those written by Charles Wesley. John Wesley, of course, was one of the great evangelists alongside George Whitefield that started the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening there in Britain. So how can we make the most of the time that we have with the people that the Lord has placed in our life. God has placed unbelievers in your life. Consider how can you maximize your time to best invest in them. Thirdly, we need to speak purposefully. Speak graciously. Let your speech always be gracious, Paul says in verse 6. It, it, remarkably, this is actually how Jesus' words were characterized and described. Luke 4.22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, they were impressed by his words. They were full of grace. They had a, this supernatural flavor for it. So don't just think grace in terms of kindness, though it may have to do with that. But really the primary emphasis here is, is on God's power of the Spirit. The, the, the root word there is grace. God's grace in which we stand. Grace that, that causes us to, to go from death into life. So graciousness is speaking of powerful words. I think graciously spiritual captures the force of the Greek here. Just as a person's accent exposes what country they're from, our words should expose where, what country we are from. should have a spiritual accent to it. Again, just think about how Jesus spoke to people. He was often just very direct, honest, always spoke the truth, and yet He also gave hope. He's also gentle always wanting to provide assistance to anybody who would ask, never turning anyone away in anger. In fact, even when his disciples were shooing people away that they didn't think were very significant, Jesus got angry then. He said, no, let him come to me. Remember the various ways he spoke to Nicodemus, the great leader of Israel, who probably everybody spoke to with great respect. He was very direct and said, unless you're born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler, who he answered his question and yet eventually walked away from Christ. And yet it said Jesus was grieved when He saw Him walk away. The Syrophoenician woman with the demon-possessed daughter the scribes who tried to stump him with theological questions. He always told the truth, but he was also gracious. And biblical truth is often hard to hear because it offends our natural pride. We tend to think very highly of ourselves on account of sin. And the Bible doesn't speak so highly of fallen man. And so it, it, it offends us. It, it hurts. It's painful to see how we fall short of God's standard. The biblical truth is like a surgeon's knife. It is, it is what people need to hear, but it still hurts. And therefore, our words should be like an anesthesia that prepares a person to accept the Lord's scalpel of truth, where they're, they're prepared to, to receive what they need. Because our gracious words have helped them see we're not trying to attack them. We're trying to save them. We're trying to help them. We care about them. Our words should be like anesthesia. And notice the preposition Paul uses. Always. Our speech should always work to build others up around us and to, re- to direct them towards God. And this actually clarifies what Paul means by his next phrase, that our speech should always be seasoned with salt. Paul's not saying that we need to speak like a salty sailor, like this salty senior chief. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it needs to have a, a spiritual flavor with it. a God's Grace should enhance our speech in the same way that salt enhances the flavor of meat or vegetables that we eat. And notice the reason that he says this. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And think about that. Our speech should be so seasoned in order to provoke questions or comments. There should be something about the way that we talk that It makes people wonder, that begs a question, that begs a comment. This is very similar to what Peter says regarding evangelism in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They want to know where does your hope come from? that you would talk this way, that you would live this way? What makes you tick? And notice that both Paul's and Peter's words presuppose a question or comment made by the unbeliever that's provoked by our lifestyle. People see the way that we're living, they see the way that we're talking, and they want to know why. Now, you you can tell when salt's been added to a meal. You can tell if there's too much salt. But you can tell when there's salt because it enhances the flavor. It makes its presence known. Likewise, our speech should make the presence of the Holy Spirit known. It should have a spiritual flavor that leads people to wonder, what makes us tick? And notice also the phrase that he uses, each person. That's important. That you would know how to answer each individual person. Why would he say each person? It's because each person's different. Each person needs to hear different truths. Each person has different kinds of confusion, different hurts, different wounds. They're different, different personalities. And so you need to think not only in terms of how do I communicate the truth, but how do I communicate the truth to this person? Parents, you know you have to communicate differently to different ones of your children. Some children need warnings. Some don't, or at least not as much. Some need a lot more tender care. Some just need a good stern look, or some just need corporal punishment. You know your kids. Each person needs to be approached differently with the gospel. We can't have a canned approach because we're addressing individuals. I appreciate what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, we must recognize the different types of persons and we must learn to discriminate between them. There's nothing so pathetic or so unscriptural as a mechanical way of testifying to others. There are some Christians who are guilty of that. They witness and testify, but they do it in a thoroughly mechanical way. They never really consider the person with whom they're dealing. They never try to assess the person or to discover exactly what his position is. And they fail completely to implement this exhortation. They present the truth in the exactly the same way to all and sundry, quite apart from the fact that their testifying is generally quite useless And that the only thing they achieve is a great feeling of self-righteousness. It is utterly unscriptural. Evangelism, again, brothers and sisters, it's about saving souls. It's not about proving how bold we are or how courageous we are or winning an argument. It's not about showing what we know in order to make people think highly of us. It's to save a soul that's going to hell. I think one of the greatest weaknesses in most approaches to evangelism is that we focus on the act of evangelism rather than on the person we're talking to. So it's often self-oriented rather than others-oriented. I mean, many evangelistic techniques are often just based on sales approaches. Probably originally meant out of a, for good reasons. There was probably a salesman that thought, man, I'm more diligent in my sales and I am in evangelism. So why don't I use the same approach? But there's a there's a big difference. You know, when you're speaking to a salesman, they're trying to sell you something. Why? Because they want your money. In other words, they want to use you. You are something to be won over for their benefit. Sales is manipulation, brothers and sisters. How many salespeople do you know that really care about your soul? Maybe a Christian salesperson does. But when they communicate, they, they care more about your soul than they do about their job to sell you something. We don't want to take our techniques from salespeople, but from Christ. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And you see his heart in those parables that we read about the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. He came to reach individual people, to save individual people with real demons, with real griefs, who had faced real rejection, who had no hope in their lives. He wasn't just coming to talk about what he wanted to talk about. He came to seek and save the lost. It was for them. And think about what he did. Not only he did he preach, he laid down his life for them. How many salespeople do you know that have laid down their life for another so that they could sell him a product? It's not what happens. Brothers and sisters, we need to not think what can we do how can we use this person? How we can manipulate this person? We need to think about how can I show that this, that their salvation means more to me than my own life. Not just true words, but demonstrable, sacrificial love. Again, we, we tend to think of evangelism only in terms of Billy Graham crusades, tent meetings going door to door, talking to a stranger on the plane. All those are good things. But what Paul is telling the Colossians here is that the best gospel conversations are created by gospel conduct. These gospel conversations should, quote, come out of your normal everyday lives by people who know you, who see you day in and day out, who can testify that you're not like the salesmen they meet in the mall but that you really care about them and their own soul it's helpful to remember that most of the Colossian church members were probably slaves these are, these are people that didn't have free time they, they probably didn't have the freedom to go out and witness go door to door throughout Colossae I'm sure if they did Paul would have been thrilled to see their boldness and their joy. And I think like ancient slaves, most of your time is is going to be occupied by other responsibilities. And if you were to forsake those other responsibilities that you had, you would would be um, unloving and irresponsible and I think therefore ungodly. We can't just shirk the responsibilities that we have. And I don't think Paul expected the slaves to do so in Colossae. I think what he expected them to do is just to believe the gospel and to, to make every opportunity they had in how they lived their life, how they spoke, how they used their times. And they would, they, would use, they would live their eyes, their lives, sorry, they would live their lives specifically towards, with an eye towards evangelism. They would realize that they'd been put in these people's lives for a reason. and it was so that they would those lost souls would be found. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a church of effective evangelists. Lord, I pray that you would use every opportunity at home, in our neighborhoods, on planes, gas stations, interacting with people on college campuses. Lord, give each of us wisdom what we need to do to be better evangelists. How we need to change in the way that we live, how we allot our time, how we speak. And Lord, I pray that you continue to bring forth opportunities, cause doors to open for the gospel. And Lord, help me to be effective in my evangelism, even as a preacher. In my counseling with others, in my proclamation of the gospel or just in Bible studies. Lord, in every interaction that I have with unbelievers. Lord, cause us to be a church that loves to see the lost come to faith. Lord, we have already proclaimed that everybody else can have the whole world, but we only want You. Lord, help us to live in such a way that that's evident to the unbelievers around us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.